Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Donald Trump's decision last month to take the US out of a three decades old arms control treaty with Russia has raised fears about the prospect of a renewed nuclear arms race to be conducted on European soil 27 years after the ending of the Cold War. That rather chilling prospect is the main focus of today's podcast and I'll be discussing it shortly with our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. But first this week, we're going to get the latest on the Brexit talks. British Prime Minister Theresa May reported back to her cabinet today, Tuesday, on progress in negotiations with the European Union on the terms of Britain's withdrawal from the EU next March. For more on this, I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, all eyes today were on that cabinet meeting in London. Has anything significant emerged from that? Yes, it did, really, because uh, Theresa May went in and she said to them, you know, she wanted to get a deal as soon as possible, but she wouldn't do that at any price. And so that was a signal that if um, if they couldn't get the deal together in time for a special European Union summit in November, that, uh, you know, she wasn't going to allow the timetable to railroad her into accepting something she didn't want to accept. But then uh, they got on to a discussion of the, you know, the one big outstanding issue in the withdrawal agreement, which is the Northern Ireland border backstop. And here there was a significant development this week because Theresa May spoke to uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar on Monday. And the Taoiseach agreed that uh, there could be a mechanism, a review mechanism, which would mean that you could end the backstop at some stage uh, you know, by an agreed mechanism. Now, he said it had to be very clear that this couldn't be unilateral so that the UK couldn't just pull out of the backstop whenever they wanted to. And that had been an idea that was floated by the Brexit Secretary, Dominic Raab, who had suggested that actually within three months of the backstop coming into operation, that Britain should be able to just unilaterally get out of that. Now, the significant thing that happened at the Cabinet meeting today was that the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, whose legal advice is really probably going to determine which way the Cabinet votes on this thing or which way it goes, he said he went into a rather detailed analysis on the kinds of uh, mechanisms that you could have. And he said, you know, that even if you had a unilateral withdrawal mechanism, that you could still find that the EU could prevent you from actually getting out of it by appealing to some other kind of authority. So that uh, he was saying that, uh, that probably on the balance of risks, that going for some kind of a mutual system where both of you have to agree to it, uh, but that there would be certain kinds of steps and kinds of tests to make sure that one side wouldn't just drag its feet and you know trap the other side in the in the backstop. That that would probably, if you take into account all the other risks like the risk of a no deal Brexit or whatever, that that probably would be the one he would tend towards. So what they agreed to do was that he, uh, the Attorney General, with uh, the Brexit ministry, would try to work up a proposal on some kind of a, a, a mechanism, a, a review mechanism for the backstop, which they would then bring to Brussels. And the idea is that you could have another cabinet meeting later this week, possibly on Thursday, possibly on Friday, where they would sign off on whatever this uh, this mechanism is, and then uh, you could actually then have a deal done quite quickly on the withdrawal agreement in Brussels, which then would mean that you could actually get maybe uh, a special summit in Brussels later this month. And, and um, as it happens, I know uh, Leo Varadkar was in the Dáil today and he was coming under pressure from Sinn Féin for um, con- pre- being prepared to consider this idea of a review mechanism at all. But he defended the review mechanism and provided again that nobody could unilaterally, or the, the Britain couldn't un- unilaterally withdraw from the backstop. So it sounds from what you've just 
said about the cabinet meeting that there, there is actually um, both sides have moved very close really to each other in the last 24 hours then haven't they? Yes, uh, apparently Geoffrey Cox uh, told the Cabinet that Leo Varadkar's uh, acceptance of the idea of a review mechanism, of the principle of it, was a major step forward. And so this, uh, you know, at, at, at the Cabinet, they're treating this as being something which has unlocked something in these negotiations, where once there is some system, because one of the things that uh, the Brexiteers particularly are worried about is, you know, what we're now talking about is uh, a customs backstop for the whole of the United Kingdom, which would mean that until you, until the as long as the backstop is required, that the whole of the UK would have to stay effectively in a customs union with the European Union. And what the Brexiteers are worried about is that they could be trapped in that indefinitely. But if they're waiting, you know, if the EU has a veto on when uh, the UK can leave this backstop, then maybe they'd never be allowed to leave at all. And so what they're really talking about is to try to find some way where it's a mutual mechanism, but nonetheless that there are certain agreed tests so that you'd say, look, we agree that if X, Y, and Z has happened, then you know we're eligible to review this thing, and that uh, you, you, that both sides are also required to do. A, B, and C within a certain time frame. So I think that's where the negotiations are going to go now over the next few, couple of days. And so depending on what happens and how much more progress is made over the next couple of days, there, there may be a further cabinet meeting on Friday, is that right? And, and then what? What would happen then? Uh, well, there could be one on Thursday or on Friday. Uh, Theresa May is going to uh, be in Paris on Friday for the or in France for the uh, armistice uh, commemorations. And so it could be Thursday or on Friday. So if that happens, uh, then you would have the uh, you know the two sides basically Dominic Grab going over to Brussels to seal this with um, the uh, with Michel Barnier. It would also have to get the approval of the EU member states you know through their Sherpas and through the ambassadors to the European Union. And then you could conceivably call uh, an EU summit. Now there was a date that has, was. Uh, was uh, that they were looking at around the weekend of the 17th and the 18th. That seems to have now slipped. And they're now talking about a date at the very end of uh, November, which would be around the 27th of November. Now, uh, I was speaking to somebody in the commission this morning who said that as far as the task force is concerned, Michel Barnier and company, really, if you don't get a deal done within the next few days, so by the end of this week or on Monday of next week, then it, there's no point in trying to get a, a summit uh, set up for the end of uh, November. And then you could just go straight ahead into the summit in December and uh, and have a summit on the, you know, in the middle of December. The problem there is that if you leave it too late, you leave very little time for Parliament to debate the deal and to vote on it before Christmas. And although Parliament did uh, sit on Christmas Day when Cromwell was around, it hasn't really done that since. And so they'd like to get everything done before Christmas if they can. Well, I think we could all do with that Parliament sitting on, on Christmas Day, Dennis. And can we, finally, it's been a kind of a roller coaster a few days for people following this story where, you know, the weekend there was a lot of speculation that a deal might be imminent or closer than those hopes seem to fade a little bit yesterday. So where, where do you think the optimism-pessimism swingometer is at now? I think the optimism is yanked upwards once again. But uh, having said that, it could be that uh, you know, if the uh, that whatever proposal that uh, the UK comes up with that is just not acceptable to the EU side, and the EU side, for example, I mean, the the, the UK had for a while been talking about the idea that you get third party arbitration in, and that's something which the EU and Ireland wouldn't accept at all. So, I think. Um, 
I think it really very much depends now on what kind of uh, proposal Geoffrey Cox and the rest of the British government come up with and whether that's somewhere within the negotiable parameters for the EU. And then I think the point is that actually, if it does happen, it can happen very quickly. But as we've seen a number of times in these negotiations, when it unravels, it can unravel very fast as well. So that uh, today, I think, is a day for optimism. Tomorrow we'll see about it. OK, well, we'll see what happens, Dennis. Thanks for that. Thank you. That was Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Now we turn to that move last month by Donald Trump to take the US out of an arms control treaty with Russia that has kept nuclear missiles out of Europe for three decades. Confirming the US decision to leave the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, Mr Trump said the US would build up its nuclear arsenal until people come to their senses. Is this the start of a new nuclear arms race? That's one of the questions our Europe editor Patrick Smith examined in a recent opinion article on this subject for the Irish Times and he joins me now from Brussels. Paddy, can we go back first to this 1987 treaty between the US and Russia, which Donald Trump is now threatening to jettison? Who signed it and what was its purpose? Well, I think you have to remember uh, the context. Um, in in the, the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a gradual build-up of missiles, uh, short-range missiles in, in Europe. And everybody was getting very jittery. There were big um, street movements uh, uh, throughout Europe against the sighting of missiles uh, in in their countries. Uh, absolutely huge demonstrations and a lot of anger, particularly young people who felt that this was a, a very dangerous development. What was happening in, in the nuclear uh, arms um, you know, uh, world was also a changing of, of uh, basic doctrines about how you would use them. And, and the idea, for example, of, of uh, uh, preemptive use of nuclear weapons came onto the agenda. So it wasn't a question of people responding to others attacking them, but it, if they feared they uh, were going to be attacked, uh, that they might authorise the use of, of nuclear weapons. And this was being widely discussed. Uh, and the sighting of these short-range uh, intermediate rep- weapons in Europe also meant that the uh, reaction time for uh, countries that were attacked was, was very limited. It could be a matter of, of a few minutes before you saw, on your, you know, from the time you saw on your radar a, a missile launching uh, to when you were, you were hit. Time... Uh, during which you could have to make a decision about retaliation or uh, whatever measures could be taken to protect your population, but very little you could actually do uh, given given that sort of short space of time. Anyway, Gorbachev, uh, who was the, the new leader of, of the Soviet Union, and Reagan had a historic uh, meeting um, in uh, in Helsinki, I think it was, uh, or in Iceland. I think it was, it was in Iceland. And uh, agreed to the basics of this, this treaty, which was eventually signed in 1987, uh, and which banned the deployment uh, and production of uh, intermediate uh, range weapons. That's weapons that that were were intended to fly between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. Basically, the the weapons that were in in the middle of Europe. And the, the introduction of this was a great moment in, in, in de-escalating the Cold War and de-escalating the arms race. It saw 2,700 uh, weapons actually dismantled and, and put away and, and the beginning of a very important process of, of other denuclearization. The START treaty would come later and that dealt with, with the, the numbers of long-range missiles and missile launchers that the countries could have. 
So the INF was was historically very important, but very significant treaty that uh, Europe, although it wasn't party to it, um, because the missiles, although sighted on their in their country, were actually American or Russian uh, missiles. And the, Paddy, just sorry, was it seen yeah. at the time? Was it was it recognised at the time in 1987 as the historical moment we now see it as? I mean, was it kind of seen at the time as the beginning of the end of the Cold War, or is, is that a retrospective viewpoint? No, I think I think it was seen as such. Uh, it was remarkable because Reagan was a hawk. Reagan was was a man who was going to bring down the Russian Empire. And the fact that he and Gorbachev, reformist, uh, who, who was seeking to change the Soviet Union, were able to come to this agreement was, was really quite, quite remarkable. Uh, and it, it, so it was part of a package of uh, moves, not only in the arms sphere, but moves that began to see the dismantling of, of the, the Soviet Union and its satellite states. And what did the treaty achieve? You started to touch on it there a moment ago. Well, it it, it saw the uh, dismantling of 2,700 intermediate weapons, nuclear weapons, in in uh, largely in Europe, and uh, these were taken away. And since then, 30 years, we've lived with a situation where there aren't these uh, nuclear weapons pointing at, at each other. Now, there are plenty of other conventional weapons pointing at each other, and, and we haven't demilitarized Europe. We, we've taken a, a big step in, in that direction. And crucially, it, it, there was a, a genuine arms race that every missile that the Americans installed somewhere or every new missile type that they invented had to be matched by the Russians by a bigger and better uh, system. And we lived constantly in fear of this... Uh, triggering uh, maybe even an accidental war and, and massive nuclear d- destruction. And to a very great extent, it has taken that kind of heat out of uh, the the uh, international sort of strategic mindset. And why do you think, Paddy, Donald Trump has chosen this moment to take the US out of the treaty? Is this just another manifestation of his distaste for multilateralism or is there something else going on? It is certainly a, a part of his dislike of treaties. Um, his new uh, his security national security advisor John Bolton is notorious for over over many years for opposing arms control treaties because he believes that they they fetter and they control uh, American power that they restrict American power and the, the he shares Donald Trump's view that all deals uh, are done on an international basis basically a cost come at the cost of of, of the U.S. that the U.S. is always the the, the one that loses out in, in either strategically or financially or, or whatever. So it's, it is very much part of their anti-multilateralism um, that they've, they've pulled apart uh, trade uh, treaties, that they take swipes at, at things like the European Union. Uh, they're, they're withdrawn large amounts of cash from the United Nations. Uh, and then this, is, this is part of that package. And w- one of the things that's worrying people is that they, they are also going to take uh, aim at the START Treaty, which is um, doing the same sort of thing, but for, for much larger, uh, range, longer range uh, weapons, and that we will, we will see a start of a new arms race. Yeah, I might come back to that in a moment, Paddy, the START uh, Treaty, which I think was signed in 2010. But um, in pulling out of this, the, the, the INF, the 1987 Treaty, um, INF Treaty as it's known, um, Trump claimed Russia has been violating the tr- treaty. The Russians replied in kind and said, well, no, the US has, the, has been um, lacking compliance. But is either side right there? I mean, is that just an excuse? Or, um, well, one? 
they certainly, they're probably both right. Uh, I think the Russians are the, the, the worse offenders. Um, and it is, it is quite clear that if anybody wants to defend the INF Treaty, if Europe, for example, the EU diplomats want to defend the INF Treaty, what they have to do is they have to persuade the Russians to uh, abide by the, the uh, decisions. Uh, you know, what what uh, the, the Russians are accused of is building missiles which have uh, um, longer ranges than they are actually claiming that, that they have. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of intelligence war that is going on between the Americans and the Russians. And in, the Americans are, are, are said by the Russians to have installed uh, sea-based, uh, ship-based missiles in Turkey that have the capacity to launch uh, Tomahawk cruise um, uh, nuclear missiles. Americans say that this particular launcher is not capable of launching Tomahawks. And so there's an argument about that. Uh, but it is probably, it is fair to say, on a small scale, because this is not widespread deployment by the Russians of this new missile. Uh, it, it is a relatively small scale, 40 or 50 uh, missiles, as I understand it. Um, they, they should be persuaded if they want to keep the, the INF treaty intact overall, which they apparently do, uh, to, to um, uh, undeploy. Uh, these these uh, missiles. And to what extent, uh, Paddy, is this about China as much as Russia? Because while Trump is citing concerns about Russian compliance with the INF, is his real worry that the US is shackled by this and other arms control treaties with Russia? And meanwhile, China is free to continue its military expansionism unimpeded. The, there is certainly an element of, of consideration of China. The, the Americans uh, would like to put some, some missiles into Taiwan and uh, some of the um, uh, countries bordering China to deter Chinese activity in the South China Sea. Uh, and the thing is that that, it, that most uh, strategists say that you don't actually need the, the weapons that we're talking about here uh, to do precisely that, and that you can do it with with conventional weapons, or you can do you can use longer range missiles. Uh, anyway, the the, the um, and, and the Chinese, of course, uh, are laughing all the way to the bank because uh, they they um, are complaining about the Americans repudiating this treaty, but they haven't signed up to it themselves. Now, Paddy, in your in your recent opinion piece that I, I mentioned at the outset, you wrote there is real concern that the repudiation of the INF will now lead to a massive arms escalation in Europe to meet the alleged Russian threat, with the latter responding in kind. How worried should we be that we may be witnessing the start of a new nuclear arms race? Well, I, I think that the uh, there is a genuine genuine fear that this is this is a possibility. One of the problems that the Americans have, though, uh, is if they did strike try and start to build up uh, uh, intermediate um, launches launch sites in in Europe, that many European countries would simply refuse to take them. Um, but but there are countries, Poland and Romania, spring spring to mind, uh, who have said that they would be prepared to see American. Uh, uh, missiles pla placed on, on, on their soil. Now, I suspect that if it actually came to it, that they would find uh, domestic opposition growing quite rapidly uh, to, to such uh, de deployments. And is the European Union powerless, Paddy, to act in this situation? Uh, yes, uh, except that it has many, mem many, many members, uh, most of its members are actually members of NATO, and NATO will also uh, will eventually take a view on on uh, uh, extra deployment of of uh, missiles in Europe. 
Um, but the European Union as such uh, can only sort of preach on the sidelines and, uh, and, and can only hope that, that people will listen to, to it. Um, I think one of the problems with, with the whole nuclear disarmament uh, uh, issue is that the, uh, that the only players really at the end of the day that, that uh, matter in practical political terms are those with nuclear weapons. So we see, for example, back in, in, in 2016, the Irish put a motion uh, to the UN General Assembly, which was passed, which basically defined nuclear weapons as, as, as immoral, uh, which said nuclear weapons should be shelved and called for a conference to discuss total global denuclearization, which is very worthy and all the rest. But the nuclear powers just laughed at them and said, um, you know, that's that's all very well. We're 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 not going to do it. And uh, it, it, it is striking a pose. Now, I happen to be one of those who believe that sometimes it's worth uh, striking poses. And it is an important expression, if you like, of active neutrality, which is uh, what our uh, country is supposed to aspire to. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it is notable, Paddy, you know, on, on that point that. Um, that motion that you mentioned that Ireland and five other countries, Australia, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria and South Africa, put forward at the UN, e- even if it didn't have much practical effect, it, it did, it, you know, it, it was passed. Um, it, it reflected a, a climate, I suppose, in favour of global nuclear disarmament. And, and I suppose I'm wondering, has the tide now turned? You know, is nuclear proliferation now something that people are talking about again? I think, well, the first thing I would say is that, is that um, the only way that you get to ban things like landmines or cluster bombs is by starting out uh, getting a group of like-minded countries together to say this is immoral. And the, the owners of those things initially say we're not having anything to do, but you can create a climate over some time where politically it's, it's unacceptable for them. So it's an important, it was an important first step uh, to, to, towards the denuclearization. But the, the problem, and I think the point I was trying to make in, in that piece, is that uh, although the climate might have been in favour of gradually moving towards denuclearization, at that time in, in 2016, Trump has put the thing into reverse. Uh, and we're now moving towards increased proliferation of, of nuclear weapons. He has also torn up the uh, Iran nuclear deal, which was in a very important agreement that, that limited... Uh, Iran's ability to to build nuclear weapons. And by walking away from that and now imposing sanctions on on Iran, Trump isn't making the world safer. He's making it less safe because he's he's inviting the Iranians to resume nuclear production and to resume proliferation. And on that deal, the Iran deal, Paddy, and our our listeners will will know that that was an agreement negotiated in the Obama era in which Iran committed to curbing its nuclear activities in return for an easing of sanctions. And those sanctions you just, you just mentioned are actually um, have been being reimposed from this week. Now, Europe, European powers remain committed to the Iran deal, but there's not much they can do to keep it alive, is there, if the US Oh, they is... can, and, and, and they, they are, but it may be at a significant cost. Uh, there's, there's a big debate on, in Europe about if the Americans extend sanctions to all of those who trade with Iran. Uh, and they threaten to do that. And the, the problem is is how, how much they will follow through. And will Europe lose its nerve? Um, individual businesses are not that brave. And so at the moment, the European Union is working on mechanisms to uh, funnel money out of Iran and to Iran uh, that bypass the American banking system. Uh, and 
it's 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 very tentative at the moment, but it is people are very nervous that this is going to lead to a significant confrontation. Mm, I mean, but I mean, you, you you say Europe can save the deal, but isn't that the the point there in practical terms? If if um, the US implements punitive measures against companies who deal with Iran, nobody's going to deal, deal with Iran. Isn't that the case? Well, they are. I mean, this is the point that the Europeans will continue to deal with Iran. So sanctions will only be par- partially effective. Uh, and and so uh, the Iranians have have said that they believe the deal can be saved if Europe stands up to the, the Americans. And they are committed to working with the Europeans um, to continue to trade. And, and so it's very interesting to see, see what will happen. It, it is a bit of a trial of strength. Uh, and uh, we, we'll see who blinks first. Okay, and, and Paddy, I did say I'd come back to um, START. You mentioned the this, this START Treaty. Now, that was um, uh, the, the US-Russia Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty signed in 2010 when Barack Obama was president. Um, just maybe remind us what that treaty was and, and why is that now also looking vulnerable? Well, it's looking vulnerable because uh, Trump himself has has made noises. Uh, now, it, he hasn't, it's not like INF, he hasn't actually said, I'm, I'm going to repudiate this. But he has made noises in the past about being unhappy with it. And John Bolton certainly uh, disapproves of it. And basically, it's a treaty uh, which, which controls the numbers of uh, the stockpiles of uh, long-range uh, nuclear missiles and, and their launchers. Uh, and it has brought down the numbers held on, on each side. Uh, so it has made a significant contribution to easing uh, tension. <laughs> it has to be said that each side still has enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. But it still is important to see a reduction in, in, in their no- relative numbers. I suppose given that it was Obama who signed it and, and Trump's apparent determination to undo everything that Barack Obama achieved, um, that that alone would make one concerned for the for the future of that particular treaty. Yes, I think that's right. But I think that though this has to be seen in the context, as I said earlier, of, of, of Trump's attitude to the whole range of multilateral institutions and organizations uh, that he is trying to dismantle, that will that process will slow down if uh, Trump loses control of uh, Congress, uh, which looks like it's it's uh, it, it may happen where the, the voting is happening as we speak. Uh, so that, that could have a significant impact on, on holding his gallop. So, Paddy, is it time for us all to uh, dust down our DVDs of Dr. Strangelove and, and remind ourselves what that was all about? Well, in a way, there's, there's a curious analogy in, in the um, development by the Russians in, in the 1970s and 80s of an automatic nuclear defence mechanism whereby... You, you took all human control out of it. Basically, if this machine sensed that Russia had been attacked, it would automatically trigger uh, a nuclear riposte. And Dr. Strangelove is all about uh, the madness of of, uh, of doing things automatically and losing control of this these extraordinary weapons, this weapons of war. That was Patrick Smith, our Europe editor in Brussels. Of course, the other big international story this week is the US midterm elections, and our Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch will give her take on the outcome to Hugh Linehan on Wednesday's Inside Politics podcast. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.